This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download the PDF of this book or to purchase a hard copy. Ruler of the Nations, Biblical Blueprints for Government by Gary DeMar. Copyright 1987 by American Vision, Atlanta, Georgia. Published by Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas. Narrated by Rick Comerick. To my children, David and James. The question of freedom is first of all a question of sovereignty and of responsibility. Who is sovereign and to whom is man responsible? This source of sovereignty is also the source of freedom. If sovereignty resides in God and only held ministerially by men, then the basic responsibility of ruler and ruled is to God, who is also the source of freedom. But if sovereignty resides in the state, whether a monarchy or democracy, man has no appeal beyond the law of the state, and no source of ethics apart from it. He is totally responsible to that order, and has only those rights which the state chooses to confer upon him. The word comprehend means to both to contain and to understand. That which contains man is also the source of our understanding of man. If man is a creature of the state, then he is to be understood in terms of the state. Aristotle's man, a social animal, can never transcend his political order. Christian man, however, created in the image of God, cannot be contained in anything short of God's eternal decree and order, nor understood except in terms of God himself. Man, therefore, is not understandable in terms of man, but in terms of God. Absolute monarchy and democracy, statism in other words, came into existence as rivals of paganism and as anti-Christian movements, whatever their ostensible claims otherwise. R.J. Rushduni. This Independent Republic, Fairfax, Virginia, Thorburn Press, 1964-1978, page 15. Editor's Introduction by Gary North Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem, and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more, until he come whose right it is, and I shall give it to him. Ezekiel 21, 26-27, King James Version. God rules the nations. He sets up rulers and removes them. Daniel 2.21 He alone is the true sovereign of the world. All other sovereign rulers are merely delegated sovereigns, whether or not they admit this fact to themselves or to their followers. It is each man's job to restructure his thoughts, words, and deeds to conform to God's standards of righteous rule. If each person would do this perfectly, an impossibility given the effects of sin, every human institution would be restructured to conform to God's standards for it. God's inescapable rule would then be made manifest by every institution. We must not be misled. God rules. Whether or not men acknowledge this, God has standards for the proper administration of every person, and therefore all institutions, whether or not anyone admits this. The proper historical understanding regarding God's rule is this. To what extent does the operation of any given human institution conform to God's standards at any point in history? To answer this, we first need to know what the standards are that God has established for all the institutions of government. God and Government 
Gary DeMar is best known for his three-volume set, God and Government. This little book is a digest of those large workbooks. What he does is to take the reader through some of the fundamental aspects of God's designated units of government, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. He makes it clear that the Bible designates all four as governments, and that it is one of the major errors of the modern world to treat civil government as the government. The modern humanist believes that civil government, the state, is the primary agency of government. This should not be surprising. As DeMar shows in this book, there is an intellectual war going on, a war between two rival views of God, man, law, and society. On one side is Christianity, with its doctrine of plural governments, plural institutional sovereignties, checks and balances, and the Bible as the word of God. On the other side are the anti-Christians. They hold a completely different view of the world. They believe that man, not God, is the sovereign agent of lawful authority, or at least man's institutions are, the state, the party, science, etc. Man rules. If we want to invent a word for this, we might call this a homocracy. Homo equals man. Kratos equals rule. Homocracy. Under the political theory of homocracy, mankind as a whole is regarded as sovereign. Mankind is in control. Man has got to take control of man, the slogan goes. This means, as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, that some men have to take control over all the others. Mankind does not actually speak out and say what it wants, so it needs representatives to speak for it, to act in its name. There's the rub. There are a lot of individuals and groups that claim to represent silent humanity. Anyone who challenges this claim can, in some cases, get himself killed. Those who want to exercise control in the name of humanity need a chain of command. The chain of command allows them to speak their sovereign word and their will be done. Unlike God, who literally spoke the universe into existence, Genesis 1, men cannot do this. Their fiat spoken word is not powerful. They need tools to enforce their words. Levers, if you will. They need leverage. How do they get it? By gaining the cooperation of others. How do they gain it? By many means, but they all boil down to two, the carrot and the stick. They buy cooperation or they compel it. In a free market society, the accent is on buying it. In a socialist command society, the emphasis is placed on forced cooperation. Mankind lives on, but men die. So how does a system of government survive the founders? How do people on top remain on top? And how do their successors remain on top? Who chooses their successors? How do those on the bottom get on top? These are the basic questions of all organizations and all governments. They are asked over and over in history of man. The answers vary in details, but there are not many different kinds of answers. The Covenant Structure To get to the right answers, we first need to ask the right questions. For a long, long time, Christians and Jews have had the right questions right under their noses, but no one paid any attention. The questions concerning lawful government are organized in the Bible around a single theme. The covenant. Most Christians and Jews have heard the word covenant. They regard themselves, and occasionally even each other, as covenant people. They are taught from their youth about God's covenant with Israel and how this covenant extends or doesn't to the Christian church. Everyone talks about the covenant, but until late 1985, nobody did anything about it. 
not in 3,400 years of Bible commentaries. Is this too strange a statement? It may be, but the fact remains, if you go to a Christian or a Jew and ask him to outline the basic features of the biblical covenant, he will not be able to do it rapidly or perhaps even believably. Ask two Jews or two Christians who talk about the covenant and compare the answers. The answers will not fit very well. For over four centuries, Calvinists have talked about the covenant. They are known as covenant theologians. The Puritans wrote seemingly endless numbers of books about it. The problem is nobody has ever been able to come up with the covenant model in the writings of Calvin, let alone all his followers. The Calvinists have hung their theological hats on the covenant, yet they have never put down on paper precisely what it is, what it involves, and how it works, in the Bible or in church history. Then, in late 1985, Pastor Ray Sutton made an astounding discovery. He was thinking about biblical symbols, and he raised the question of two New Testament covenant symbols, baptism and communion. This raised the question of the Old Testament's covenant symbols, circumcision and Passover. What did they have in common? Obviously, the covenant. But what precisely is the covenant? Is it the same in both testaments, covenants? He began reading, rereading some books by Calvinist theologian Meredith Klein. In several books, collections of essays, Klein mentioned the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. He argued that the book's structure, in fact, parallels the ancient pagan world's special documents that are known as the suzerain, king, vassal, treaties. That triggered something in Sutton's mind. Klein discussed the outline of these treaties in several places. In some places, he says they have five sections. In other places, he indicates that they may have had six or even seven. It is all somewhat vague. So Sutton sat down with Deuteronomy to see what the structure is. He found five parts. Then he looked at other books of the Bible that are known to be divided into five parts, Psalms and Matthew. He believes that he found the same structure. Then he went to other books, including some Pauline epistles. He found it there too. When he discussed his findings in a Wednesday evening Bible study, David Chilton instantly recognized the same structure in the book of Revelation. He had been working on this manuscript for well over a year, and he had it divided up into four parts. Immediately, he went back to his computer and shifted around the manuscript sections electronically. The results of his restructuring can be read in his marvelous commentary on the book of Revelation, The Days of Vengeance, Dominion Press, 1987. Here, then, is the five-point structure of the biblical covenant, as developed by Sutton in his excellent book, That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant, Institute for Christian Economics, 1987. 1. The Transcendence and Eminence of God. 2. Authority slash Hierarchy of God's Covenant. 3. Biblical law slash ethics slash dominion. 4. Judgment slash oath, blessings and cursings. 5. Continuity slash inheritance. Simple, isn't it? Yet it has implications beyond your wildest imagination. Here is the key that unlocks the structure of human government. Here is the structure that Christians can use to analyze church, state, family, and numerous other non-covenantal but contractual institutions. It can be used to unlock the long-debated structure of the Ten Commandments, 1 through 5, with a parallel 6 through 10. I spotted this almost as soon as Sutton described his discovery, just as I was finishing my economic commentary on the Ten Commandments, the Sinai Strategy, Institute for Christian Economics, 1986, which I outlined in its preface.
It can also be used to make sense out of some of the basic concepts of economics, as I show in my book, the Biblical Blueprint Series, Inherit the Earth, 1987. In fact, once you begin to work with this model, it becomes difficult not to see it in everywhere you look. This means that Sutton's model is either very powerful or very hypnotizing. Where the intellectual payoff really gets high is in the field of government. Gary DeMar did not deliberately structure the first draft of his manuscript around Deuteronomy's five-point covenant model. Nevertheless, as I read it, I recognized the five points. I simply moved his chapters around. He had already covered the basic topics of government that the five-point model reveals in two sets of five chapters. Once again, we see the power of this covenant model. Without deliberately imitating it, DeMar asked the questions raised by the covenant model. He just didn't originally ask them in the covenant model's order. Let us consider the five simple questions that this model raises for us studying the various institutions of government. 1. Who's in charge here? 2. To whom do I report? 3. What are the rules? 4. What happens to me if I obey, disobey? 5. Does this outfit have a future? If every textbook in political theory or the history of political theory were written around these five questions, students would have a lot less trouble sorting out the subject matter of political theory. If I had understood it back in those long-gone years of the in Eisenhower administration, when I first struggled with these problems, I might have figured out why political participation was so important to my deeply religious humanist instructor. I might have also recognized more clearly the nature of his religion. You have a great advantage over most other Christians, not to mention political theorists. You now know something about this covenant structure. If you intend to do anything about the crisis we are in, or will be in shortly, you will find it most useful. Humanist Theocracy versus Biblical Theocracy If you believe that God truly rules every area of life, then you are a defender of Biblical Theocracy. You say in confidence that God rules. The Greek word for God is theos. The Greek word for rule is kratos. From these two words, we derive the English word theocracy. This does not mean the rule of the institutional church. That system would be an ecclesiocracy. Church equals ecclesia. The Bible is opposed to ecclesiocracy. A theocracy is what God has already set up. He already rules the affairs of men. To the extent that God, any God-established institution of lawful government, self-government, family government, church government, or civil government conforms itself progressively to God's standards, it steadily reflects this already existing theocracy. Thus, to use the term theocracy to describe a civil government that is run by the institutional church is a deliberate falsifying of the biblical meaning of theocracy. It is the humanist favorite and most successful verbal trap. They have defined theocracy to mean what they want it to mean. And then they have scared Christians into political retreat by yelling, Theocracy! Theocracy! at them whenever they raise the question of God's permanent standards for every area of life. Most humanists defined all of life in terms of politics, or see politics as the primary way to make life better. Then they redefine theocracy to mean the church's rule over politics, for politics is the heart and soul of humanism. On this point, see the book by George Grant in the Biblical Blueprint series, The Changing of the Guard. 
Humanists usually think of government as a top-down bureaucracy that controls almost everything in society. The Bible teaches that government is actually a general term for self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. The Bible rejects the whole idea of government as a top-down bureaucracy. The Bible teaches that government is a bottom-up appeals court structure. Thus, when humanists paint a picture of theocracy as tyrannical, they are using a false model, indeed an ancient humanist model, to guide their painting. What the Bible says is that every area of life is to be ruled by God's permanent principles. This is the biblical meaning of theocracy an earthly reflection of what the Bible says has always existed, namely, the rule of God in every area of life, not just civil government. Gary DeMar's book has made the meaning of theocracy clear. From this time on, Christians who read it should be able to handle the misleading and highly effective challenge of the humanist against the rule of God. Yet, despite DeMar's clarity, it will take an act of will on the part of each Christian reader to say to himself mentally, God rules. God rules everything. He is the only creator and the final judge. It is his desire that everything men build should reflect his perfection. Therefore, theocracy means that all governments, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government are theocratic governments, plural. God rules them all. He rules in terms of his revealed law. Biblical theocracy, therefore, does not mean tyranny. Humanist theocracy means tyranny, the rule of self-proclaimed sovereign man. The humanists have brainwashed Christians when it comes to the biblical meaning of theocracy. Christians should recognize from the very beginning that humanists have already brainwashed them. It is time to get unbrainwashed. We must begin this intellectual deprogramming process by reading carefully and by thinking about what we are reading. It takes real effort to pay attention to the meaning of words. Christians must not allow themselves to slip back into using the false definition of theocracy that humanists have provided for us in order to destroy us. Training people for self-government. Each of the three institutional governments in the Bible is designed to lead people into self-government under God. Spiritual slaves represent this process of liberation, as do the earthly masters of spiritual slaves. We see this clearly in the account of the Exodus. The Hebrew slaves were angry at Moses for having angered the Pharaoh, Exodus 5.20-21. They were not angry at the Pharaoh, the tyrant. Slaves need tyrants in much the same way that tyrants need slaves, a condition of mutual dependence that is not based on self-government under God. The need of governments to train subjects to exercise independent judgment is obvious in the case of family government. Parents who keep their children under their thumbs for life will die in old age in poverty, or at least insecurity, for their children will be unreliable supporters. Patriarchy in the Bible was always based on the idea that the father would leave the sons their share of the family's property before he died. He would give his sons their appropriate blessings, assets, when they reached maturity. Abraham gave Sarah's tent to Isaac when Isaac married Rebekah. Genesis 24:67. Then he married Keturah and moved east, 
Genesis 25, 1 through 7. Abraham dropped out of covenant history as a major figure at that point. Although he fathered more children, including Midian, who in turn fathered the Midianites, 25, 2, Isaac received his portion, and covenant history developed through him. We recognize that patriarchs who try to maintain direct control over their sons and sons-in-law are implicitly, implicitly petty tyrants. In the United States, immigrant groups that have a tradition of patriarchy abandon that tradition within a single generation. The children will no longer put up with such nonsense. Only in a tyranny like the mafia in imitation family can such paternalism be sustained and only through violence and the promise of great financial gain. Few people see the mafia as a valid family model. The freedom that the West has provided has revealed lifetime patriarchy as a pagan anachronism. It destroys the initiative of the heirs. Paternalism is a curse creating dependence and an incentive for rebellion at the same time. The same criticisms are equally applicable to the paternalism of either church or state. God judges such systems. Any tightly knit top-down hierarchy of bureaucracy eventually breaks down. It splinters churches and states. It produces followers who show no initiative. The paternalistic institution becomes stagnant. Its followers expect the leaders to work to build the organization, while the leaders expect the followers to carry them on their shoulders economically. The proper goal of biblical theocracy in family, church, and state is personal independence and self-responsibility. This is why biblical theocracy is hated by modern humanist theocrats who want to make the state into God and then rule other men through a system of top-down political power. Biblical theocracy kills humanist theocracy, for it destroys the economic, legal, psychological dependence of the masses of people on their elite rulers. Besides, all humanistic theocracies eventually die anyway, for they cannot stand the competition that they receive from newer, hungrier, more energetic institutions. This is the fate of every human empire in history. Summary only the innovation and flexibility of self-governed people under the rule of God's law can sustain the growth of God's kingdom over time. Men will be ruled by God, or else they will be ruled by men who imitate God. There is no escape from the rule of other men. The question is, by what standard will rulers rule and also be governed? Everyone is under another person's authority in most areas of life. Everyone answers for his actions. The doctrine of divine rights applies only to God. God alone answers to no one else. There is no divine right of kings, priests, parents, or voters. There is no divine right of anyone on earth. Everyone is accountable to other people. But this accountability is judicial, an appeals court system. Initiative remains with the individual. It is... In the immortal words of Grace Hopper, a developer of the computer language COBOL, and who in her late 70s, in the early 1980s, was the oldest officer still on active duty in the U.S. Armed Forces, Navy, it's easier to say you're sorry later than to ask permission. This outlook is the essence of self-government under God. Ask God, then you say you are sorry to men later on, if necessary. Forward by John Whitehead. In our present society, the issue of authority has provoked great strife between Christians and the state. 
when, for example, is the state performing a proper function, and when is it encroaching upon the rights and responsibilities that God has entrusted to the family or the church. The severity of the conflict is evident in many court cases that have arisen because people who choose to live by their religious convictions stumble headfirst into state resistance. Gary DeMar's book, Ruler of the Nations, presents a clear and well-substantiated description of the three types of government established by God, the family, the church, and the civil government, each given its own specific and limited jurisdiction. These three governments were intended to work cooperatively with one another under the ultimate authority of God. Unfortunately, that relationship of cooperation has been replaced by one of competition and contention. The state, having severed itself from all accountability to God, has increasingly seized control of areas that rightfully belong to the family or the church. But equally damaging is the way in which the church and family have voluntarily relinquished many of their responsibilities to the government bureaucracy. But the trend is not irreversible. DeMar recommends several effective actions for the family and the church to take when to wean themselves from false dependency on the state, particularly in the area of social services, and reassert their claim to their rightful obligations. Christians should read this section with a mind toward application. The creeping statism of our society will never be stopped until Christians are ready to obey God's mandate and take responsibility for the duties he has assigned. This book could prod many in the right direction.